From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. According to the U.S. Surgeon General, loneliness is now an epidemic and it's affecting our health. We'll talk with a group of mental health professionals, along with a poet, about ways to combat it and how we've evolved to be so closed off and to ourselves. We see sort of the drive for social connection as a drive. It's a fundamental drive, like mm-hmm. hunger, you know, or, or the need for sleep. We need touch, we need eye contact, you know, and we really yeah. need to feel a sense of belonging. Charity Howard caught up with the Democratic nominee for Philadelphia City Council at large, who is set to make history. We have to intentionally reinvest in our communities as much as back in the 30s, we were intentionally disinvesting from our communities. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. According to the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, at any moment, about one out of every two Americans is experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. He recently proposed a national framework to rebuild social connection and community in America. In his op-ed piece in The New York Times, Dr. Murthy said, When people are socially disconnected, their risk of anxiety and depression increases. So does their risk of heart disease by 29 percent, dementia by 50 percent, and stroke 32 percent. The increased risk of premature death associated with social disconnection is comparable to smoking daily and may even be greater than the risk associated with obesity. So we definitely need to try to remedy this problem. Joining me to discuss this issue is Dr. Matthew Herford. He's president and CEO of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Health Plans Community Care Behavioral Health Organization. Joining Dr. Herford is Hallie Lightdale. She's a clinical psychiatrist from Lower Marion and currently works in North Philadelphia. And Athena Dixon is a poet, essayist, editor, and author of the forthcoming essay collection, The Loneliness Files. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Good to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. So let's first start out by defining loneliness and exploring some of the root causes of it. What does it actually mean to be lonely? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is the important difference between loneliness and being alone. Okay. A lot of times we can be by ourselves and that feels perfectly comfortable. Mm-hmm. The state of loneliness, though, is really about uh, the difference between the ki- amount of connection you want to have with people in your lives and the amount that you actually have. And when we have that gap, we tend to feel lonely. Mm-hmm. And you can feel lonely by yourself. You can feel lonely when you're surrounded by people. Yes. Uh, And I think that's really important to keep in mind, that just being around people itself doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to feel lonely sometimes. It's about connection and the strength and meaning of those connections that really defines whether we feel lonely in our lives or whether we feel well-connected to society, our friends, our family, cultural institutions, faith organizations, all the things that sort of make up our social life. Now, that doesn't apply to the person who considers him or herself uh, a recluse or an introvert, right? Those people are comfortable being alone. Well, yeah, and I I think that in the history of psychiatry and when people sort of try to think about ways of how the mind works, right, we see sort of the drive for social connection as a drive. It's a fundamental drive like Mm -hmm. hunger, you know, or, or the need for sleep. It's something we need as humans. We need touch. We need connection, you know. 
we need eye contact, you know, and we really yeah. need to feel a sense of belonging right. at times. But we also, as we develop, need to develop the capacity to be alone. You know, it's important. So, so there are a lot of sort of um, maybe later thinkers in the history of psychoanalysis. You know, Freud originally defined loneliness as sort of a sense of loss. To him, it was more about melancholy and depression. Mm. And then later on, it became more an understanding that for a, in development, like for a baby or a young child, to achieve the ability to be alone and comfortable in that state for, you know, for relatively short periods of time. But then as you get older, to feel okay with that um, is something that's really crucial to developing a stable personality over time because a person needs to be able to tolerate the stress of being alone. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, yeah. and it's important for us to grow internally. And so I, what I, one thing that I like is that the way the psychoanalysts think about it is they think about sort of interpersonal loneliness, as you were talking about sort of social disconnection, but then also sometimes the idea of intrapsychic loneliness when you feel sort of that separation people can feel inside themselves when, you know, we all have experienced that disconnect between how I want my life to be, but how okay. I'm living, you yeah. know, and the habits I I have, but the ones that I want to have and, and that sense of disconnect from your sort of true self. Right. And that's a different kind of loneliness as well. Okay. Well, for the Surgeon General to come out with something that he's trying to, you know, actually remedy this problem and bring more awareness to it means that this is a pretty big deal. Why is it so widespread and affecting us the way it is? I'm thinking about it in, in a similar way that in 2021, I believe it was, Japan did something very similar. They instituted a minister of loneliness and that minister's whole job was to help combat the rising suicide rates during the COVID lockdowns and to help people stop being um, hikikomori, which is a, a segment of about a million people in Japan who purposely isolate themselves and they have very little contact with society. Okay. So we're a little bit behind that curve because it's something that already exists. But I think what it is, is that for the first time in the last three years, a lot of people who felt that they were very socially connected because we have social media, we have the ability to like and share and reblog and show up. We think that that's sometimes true connection and it's the yeah. only connection. And I think for the first time when the lockdowns happened, people really had a chance to look at it and say, no, what I thought was a connection really wasn't. And when the, the option to connect in that way personally was taken away, people didn't know how to deal with it. And so now there's this ripple effect of people really looking at the connections they've made in the years prior to 2020 and discovering whether or not they were actually hollow connections or really connected and open um, feelings with other people. Right. Yeah, that social media, especially the younger generation growing up with it, social media. We're social. Aren't we social? We're talking to each other. We're we're liking each other's pictures. That's not social. That's not doing the job. Why not? Yes and no. There's all kinds of different connection. And uh, there is no doubt that during the pandemic, there was uh, social media, our ability to connect over Zoom or via probably helped really buffer us from a lot of the impacts of being physically isolated mm -hmm. from each other. Uh, but there, as we all know, there's a lot of social media out there that is anything but social and meaningful. It can exacerbate our feelings of loneliness. It can breed a lot of feelings of inadequacy, envy, mm -hmm. jealousy, yeah. disconnection. Look at all these other people doing fabulous things out in the world and the community. Look at their families and their friends and how beautiful and how thin and how successful and how rich and all of these things. Right. And here we are by ourselves looking at this endless scroll of content. That's not meaningful connection. Right. When I look at a you know social media influencer or a celebrity, I don't have a relationship with that person. Right. What I have is an inner sense of comparison, and let me tell you, it doesn't always go so well. Right. Um, but when you use social media or technology to reach out and connect with somebody who you haven't seen in a while, or uh, that lives on the other part of the world, or that you find some kind of affiliation or kinship group with, 
but maybe in your community, because of where you live or how you were raised, you feel that there aren't people that look, sound, and believe the things that you do. If you can find those connections on an online community, that's real and meaningful. Okay. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. So, what are some of the things that attribute to loneliness, actual loneliness? We're talking about the uh, pandemic, which really opened up a world of things to see, things we never saw before, we never realized, we never noticed about each other or our relationships. The pandemic kind of had us look a little closer. So what are some of the things that attribute to loneliness? We can all talk about that. And it might be different for everyone. I think for me, what contributed to it is the idea of having to, in some ways, leave a nest to get to where you need to go personally, creatively, financially, emotionally, and then having to deal with years later the repercussions of those choices. So for me, I was born and raised in Ohio, and I moved to Philadelphia by myself eight years ago. So my entire world, my parents, my sister, my grandparents, everyone has remained in Ohio. And I moved to Philadelphia for a very specific thing. And it helped me career wise and helped me creatively because it opened opportunities I would have never gotten in small town Ohio. But now eight years later, I'm by myself. And there's a loneliness there because I yearn to go home. But creatively and career wise, it's not the best option. And I think sometimes being able to follow your dreams and whatever manifestation that may be requires you to disconnect in a way that you won't be able to deal with the repercussions for many years later. So what exactly is social connection and how do we achieve it properly? <laughs> well, I think it can mean different things to different people. And ultimately, it's it really is individually defined. Okay. Uh, for some people, having social connection means having a couple of very close relationships, whether with friends or family. Um, But it's a very subjective experience. I feel connected to this person. Oftentimes, the descriptors people will use is, this person gets me. They understand me, Mm -hmm. right? That it's a two-way relationship. I can trust this person. Oftentimes, a really important connection, aspect of social connection. For other people, and this tends to be for folks that are more extroverted, that uh, draw a lot more um, satisfaction and meaning in having large social networks, they need to feel connected to something larger. Uh, So it's not just about the individual. It's about I'm a part of this town, this church, this team, right, this tribe. And they need that larger sense of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, two simple things I think that we can do are to do a checkup and a check-in to make sure that we don't feel checked out. So do a (laughs) checkup on yourself, right? So right now, like, just ask yourself, am I feeling lonely? Or do I feel like I have people in my life and relationships in my life that matter? That if I was going through a hard time right now, I could pick up the phone, I could, you know, walk down the street, and I could tell that person, hey, I'm not doing okay, Mm. right? I think that's a good barometer of how trusting that relationship is. Um, And then, you know, once you've done that, I think that can really open up our own eyes to say, well, maybe I need to reconnect with someone. Maybe I need to expand my social circle, Um, which gets to the next one, which is, you know, check in. Check in with other people in your life. Because if you are going through that period of loneliness, chances are, and we know from the statistics that you shared, at least half of people around us are experiencing some loneliness as well. And so reaching out to them, especially if you haven't heard from somebody in a long time, check in with them and find out how they're doing. And then, of course, uh, by doing that, you're also helping to Mm. uh, with your own personal checkup. Okay. 
I also, I think that part of um, the social connection, right, is feeling heard and also feeling seen. And, and the best and most, you know, sort of nourishing is to feel understood, right? And, and that's, right. Um, I think, part of what I try to make sure is part of every patient appointment that I have is, you know, that's sort of, I think, part of my job is, is to try to really engage with someone where they're at and try to understand them and just, you know, see them and, and hear them and that there's some therapeutic value fundamentally in that. And Athena, how did you go about starting to write this particular memoir? The Loneliness Files. Part of it was coming to terms with a lot of deaths that happened in my family within roughly the first two years of COVID and starting to really realize that the more and more I aged, the more and more I was becoming an elder, and the more and more I felt like it was my responsibility to reconnect in ways that I hadn't as I was in my 20s and my 30s, going to school and earning degrees and getting a career and writing books and neglecting some of those connections for the sake of my own personal gain. And so I started to really drill down into the decisions that I made that led me to this like ultimate point of loneliness. So not having children, um, and that was the result of a divorce. I okay. got divorced, and then I decided that was beyond the age I should have children because I didn't think I would be in a relationship where I could have children. So that's a, a set of loneliness, mm. um, drilling into the idea of how I used fandom as a way to escape and create the world that I really wanted and how that was another version of loneliness. But the good thing in that loneliness, there was a world of other people who felt the same, and we had our own little community. And then starting to really think, now that I know this is what my life looks like, this loneliness, this disconnection, this isolation, some of it by choice and some of it by circumstance, what do I do now to move out of it? And now that and the book kind of ends with me making the decision if I'm going to move back to Ohio, am I going to reconnect in ways um, with my family, um, if I'm going to make conscious choices to step out of that loneliness. And I think that there's like this cusp, everybody who feels that loneliness gets to where you know what the loneliness is. You feel the heaviness of it. You feel the weight of it. And you have to make a decision. Are you going to just go down in it? Yeah. Or are you going to make a decision to try to lessen it? And I think that that's where the book ends up. Now, I know as as we're kind of winding things down, um, the, the whole reason why uh, the Surgeon General is bringing this to everyone's attention is because it is affecting our health. Um, so, Dr. Herford, perhaps you can talk about the connection between loneliness and ultimately how it's adversely affecting our health. Sure. And I, I feel we're so fortunate to have a Surgeon General who is shining a light on this issue. Um, you know, when I grew up, I remember Surgeon General warnings and advisories around things like smoking and wearing mm -hmm. seatbelts. And those things are incredibly important. But I don't remember a Surgeon General or public health officials talking about loneliness. And, yeah. But as you talked about at the top of the show, we know from really good research that being lonely, uh, especially lonely over time, greatly impacts in a negative way our physical health and our mental health. Um, and even some more recent studies say that it's actually worse than smoking, worse than problematic drinking, worse than having like a really sedentary lifestyle if you're not getting enough exercise. Yeah. Uh, it increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, so things like heart attacks, it increases the risk of stroke, and it increases the risk of dementia. And yeah. so you think about what can we be doing as a nation around public health? Addressing the loneliness epidemic is one of the single greatest opportunities we have especially because the treatment for it, social connection, has no side effects. Right. It's free. Usually it's not addictive. You don't need a prescription for it. It's accessible to everybody, whether you got insurance or not. Right? So yeah. we have this big problem. 
but we also have a solution that is right in front of us. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you live in a city or out in the country, um, what your background is, there are things that you can do right now to reach out and check up with yourself, check in with others to address this. And so I'm so grateful uh, for the, the advisory and for the attention that we're putting on onto this topic. It's not a common one that gets discussed. And I think that that's because there's some shame and stigma associated with feeling lonely. Um, it's hard for some people uh, to talk about feeling lonely because we're worried that maybe that sends a signal that we're not likable. You know, mm. if people, if I liked myself, if people liked me, maybe I wouldn't be lonely. Yeah. Uh, and that's just not the case. We all get lonely. We all feel lonely. It's what you do with that feeling and how you address it. That's what is going to determine ultimately what kind of meaningful, healthy relationship and life that you have. Yeah. Athena, where can we find your book? It's not out until October 3rd, but okay. it's available for pre-order anywhere yes. you would buy a book. Amazon, tenhouse.com, Barnes & Nobles. The Loneliness Files uh, by Athena Dixon. Thank you so much. Dr. Matthew Herford, Dr. Hallie Lightdale, and of course, Athena Dixon. Thank you so much for coming here and, you know, being a part of this conversation. I think that's where it all starts. We start talking about it and spread the word and get out there, check up, check in and get active. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The Pennsylvania primary election was full of twists, surprises, and firsts. Charity Howard sits with a Philadelphia City Council candidate who knows a bit about breaking the glass ceiling. Rue Landau is poised to become Philly's first openly LGBTQ city council member. She secured one of the five nominations for at-large seats on council. Landau, a housing and civil rights attorney, received the first same-sex marriage certificate in Pennsylvania in 2014. And of all the newcomers, she's among the most experienced, the former head of both the city's Commission on Human Relations and Fair Housing Commission. She spent 12 years working under the two most recent mayor administrations and 10 years as senior housing attorney at Community Legal Services. And not to be missed, but this is a milestone in the LGBTQ community's decade-long push to gain more visibility in elected office. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, so I went to her South Philly home, knocked on the door, and we sat on the stoop and had a conversation. All right, Ruth, so this is about history. You're making it. It's fantastic. This is, it's, a, it's the cherry on the top of a wonderful wind. So, um, you know, we in Philadelphia have never had an openly LGBTQ council person. We've had two people in the past who are no longer with us who were council people who unfortunately didn't have the luxury to live an out life. That's John Anderson and Ethel Allen, who was a Republican. And um, I'm just so blessed to be able to be the first openly LGBTQ council person, so long as all goes well in November. And also, to it just represents where we are in our time, that in Philadelphia, it's a, a safe place um, and a place where we can all be ourselves. 
and it's always about standing on the shoulders of the ones that came before you. You acknowledge that, but you also look forward. It's about vision as well. It's respecting your history, but also looking towards the future. Oh, absolutely. And we have so many leaders in our community today, too. I stand on the shoulders of them as well. You know, um, important to acknowledge that John Anderson and Ethel Allen were both African-American council people who were in the LGBTQ community and were doing amazing things. You know, John Anderson was a lawyer just like me and really making significant change in the city. But we have so many leaders in our community as well, right? We have uh, folks who are with us and folks who recently passed who have just made significant change and made the LGBTQ community the strong coalition that it is now and the strong community that it is now. And I absolutely stand on the shoulders of those giants. Family of fighters. (laughs) <laughs> Without a doubt, <laughs> fighters and siblings, and it is uh, it is family. We fight within family and with family uh, as a group too. So it is, you know, what what hurts us makes us stronger too. So. Right. I can say that about my sister. You can't say that about my sister. Exactly. <laughs> so going forward, most likely in November, that spot will be your spot, one of five on the city council. Now, what do you plan to do with that seat? How will you make it work for everyone? One of my first things that I want to do is start building a coalition of us. Council people for so many years have been doing things in silos and not necessarily always working together. And I think the challenges that are facing Philadelphia today are so huge that not one person can do it. I think we all really need to come together. Thankfully, with a new, great, powerful mayor, come together, work together, and start slaying those dragons. There are significant issues, and if we can all agree on the top three or four priorities and start tackling them, we can make significant change, and we can do it quickly, and it could be long-lasting, community-led, and with all of us working together. And it's really an all-hands-on-deck situation, but it's also for everyone. Without a doubt. I've spent my whole professional career fighting for social justice and equity. I ran the city civil rights agency, the housing enforcement agency. I was a legal services lawyer representing low-income tenants. And there's no doubt in my mind it's the, the historical disinvestment from our communities that has led us to the situation where we are in now. And that we have to intentionally reinvest in our communities as much as back in the 30s, we were intentionally disinvesting from our communities. So from redlining and all of the ways in which our government extracted wealth from communities of color, we have to affirmatively work to put those resources back in. That makes every community and every neighborhood a strong, thriving, prosperous neighborhood, and we are all better for it. It's not only equity and the right thing to do, it's the economic just thing to do at the end of the day as well. We will all thrive and everybody will be better off for it. You've removed the barriers for some and you've removed the barriers for all. Without a doubt. All of the the barriers that are in place now were constructed to leave certain groups and people down. Without a doubt, I will say it as I see it. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Honesty, integrity, that's what it takes. But there's been a lack of it in a lot of places. But let's talk about now how intentional it is and for the community to make sure that you, along with so many other firsts, Mm -hmm. are in the position that you're in. And this is a real coalition of women. 
Right. Uh, first of all, women swept these elections. It was amazing. You can almost hear it. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, we got women into positions in every single level of the city, and it's just incredible. And it's really refreshing. And I couldn't be more excited about having our 100th mayor be um, such a strong fierce woman as Sherelle Parker. So that is going to be super exciting to finally have a woman as a leader to lead us in the city, and especially during this time, right? When I talked about building a coalition, we have to work together, and women are really good at working together. We work together, we heal things, we fix things, and that's what we do. This could be probably the most important time in history for us to have a woman as a leader. As far as my entering city council at this time, people say it's one of my superpowers is to build coalitions and to bring people together across differences. And I did that when I was running the city's Human Relations Commission. The issues that are affecting our city aren't just geographic. When we look over at Kensington, that was never the quote unquote problem of any city council person. That was all of our issues. Every single one of us Every council person, every elected official, every block captain should have been rolling up their sleeves and saying, what can we do? And when I talk about the fact that I want to help pull uh, council people together so we can focus on the issues affecting our city, we all need to be there and we all need to roll up our sleeves. And one of the beauties of being an at-large council person, meaning citywide, is that I can work on the issues throughout the city, help to heal pockets, help to bring people together, help to make Philadelphia a more equitable place for all of us. The distinction of my being the first openly LGBTQ council person, this time is incredibly important. It can't happen more quickly for us as well. Philadelphia has been on the cutting edge of protecting the civil rights of LGBTQ people for years, right? We included sexual orientation in our anti-discrimination law in 1982. We included gender identity in 2002. And as I know personally, when Pennsylvania passed a same-sex marriage before the country on May 20th, 2014, my wife and I were the first same-sex marriage license in the whole state of Pennsylvania. So we've jetted very far in our terms of LGBTQ civil rights in a very short period of time. But we're also at a very dangerous time where we are now watching all of these successes and all of this wonderful movement that we made start getting battled back by right-wing bigots who really want to take our rights away. So from Florida to Bucks County and many, many places in between all over the country, they're literally trying to strip us of our rights of all versions of our community. And now more than ever, I think it's very important that we have a member of the community, not only on our city council, to help maintain Philadelphia as a safe space. It is extremely important that we have at the seat at the table right now, but it's also really important that we help our region we make sure that everybody knows we say black lives matter we say brown lives matter and immigrants matter and everybody is welcome here and that we have a safe city for all of us no one is going to inch us back from this we were only going to keep moving forward because that's what we need to do for all of philadelphia thanks for joining us for bridging philly brought to you by gift of life donor program organ donors save lives be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.